Let's open our Bibles this morning to Genesis 38. Genesis 38. Now, I will tell you some thoughts from great theologians on this passage before we read it. H.C. Leopold was a professor, an Old Testament scholar, and he said that Genesis 38 is entirely unsuited to homiletical use. That means you should never preach on this passage. Okay? And, and I was, personally, I was talking to a longtime Presbyterian years ago, and we were talking about some passages that that, uh, you know, like this, we wonder why they were in, in Scripture. And he says that passage is not fit to be read in public. So we are about to read the passage and to preach upon the passage. Uh, and, and with that warning that is before us. Now, now this chapter, I'm convinced if, if the Bible were, was, not, were, was not inspired by the Lord, that chapter 38 probably would not be here. Because it just does not make the people of God look very good. Right? This is not something that, if it happened in your family, you would want printed for distribution to the public at large. Okay? Why hang out your dirty laundry for everybody else to see? But God is not concerned with dirty laundry. He is only concerned with including in his word those things which we need to know. Those things which help us understand who he is, what he is about, and what, and what we are called to do and how we are called to live because of that. That's what the Lord is concerned about in communicating to us through his word. So that is the introduction to chapter 38. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I will read the word of God. I'm going to read the entire chapter because it is one entire story. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, come upon us today that uh, our eyes might be open to the truth that is here before us, that your Holy Spirit would, would work in our minds and our hearts, that we would have more than just understanding of what is on this page, but an understanding of your character, an understanding of how you call us to live. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 38, and it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And she bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Chezib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Now just to pause, how would you like that to be your legacy? Okay, <laughs> You're the firstborn son of Judah, through whom the covenant goes, and what are you known for? You were evil, and the Lord took your life. Then Judah said to Onan, uh, verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so it came about that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. 
Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not, and he had not been given to her as, as, as a husband. Uh, he was, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, Therefore, I will send you a kid from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed, removed her veil, and put on her widow's garments. Now when Judah sent the kid by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of her place, saying, Where's the temple prostitute who was by the road of Enim? And they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Well, let her keep them, lest we become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this kid, but you did not find her. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. And it came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So his name was Perez. And afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. So there you have it. Why is this one in Scripture? Okay? Ah. There are two themes. Two themes that run through this chapter. And the first one is how quickly the people of God can become morally corrupt when they take their eyes off the Lord. 
Okay, how quickly it happens. Verse 1, we see very clearly, it came about that Judah departed from his brothers. He departed from in amidst the covenant people for a time. And for what purpose? He visited a certain brother, a certain Adulamite whose, whose name was Hira. And there he found a Canaanite woman. This did not happen accidentally. Judah purposely did not want to find, for whatever reason, a, a woman within the covenant family of God. He wanted to go out and find somebody different. Okay? The Bible says what happens. Don't be, don't, don't be deceived. Okay? Bad company corrupts the good. Do you want to go hang out with a corrupt moral, in a corrupt moral world? Your morals will be corrupt as well. And that's what happens to Judah. Um, he sees this woman and he takes her in marriage. And the emphasis here is not on anything other, according to the, to the language, than the physical. He sees her, he lusts in her heart after her, and he says, this is the woman that I want. Now, we've seen this before in a kind of a famous guy in Judges chapter 14. Uh, remember when Samson goes and he sees a Canaanite woman, and he says, hey, I've got to have her. She is everything I want, and the focus there is purely upon the physical, how she looks. So, and, it, and just let me quote it here. Samson went down to Timnah, saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Philistines were not friends of the Israelites. So he came back, told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Get her for me as a wife. Get her for me as a wife. And his father and mother are like, what? No good Jewish girls? You can't find any here? Can't find any? No. None at all. Go and take a wife for me. And, and, and the mother and father say, do you want us to take a wife for you from the uncircumcised Philistines? And he says, you bet. You bet. Now, it's very clear from that point on, it, the author of Judges is very distressed by Samson's choice and by Samson's actions. And his parents are like pulling their hair out because of what he has done. But understand later it says... However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. So the Lord was going to use Samson's uh, lust in his heart and his desire for this Philistine woman to punish the Philistines. Nobody saw that yet. That hadn't been revealed to anybody yet. And it sure appeared like Samson was pursuing something that was detrimental. But yet the Lord took what was detrimental and used it for what was good. And we've seen that before in Genesis, uh, and we'll see it again in just a moment. So back to Judah, who marries this Canaanite woman, and right away he begins to blend in with the pagan culture around him. Now keep in mind that this corruption in chapter 38, now part of your homework is to read chapter 39, because chapter 39 is the example of Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife comes and, and grabs him and he says, come in with me. And he says, no, no. And he runs off. Okay. So, so the first illustration here is that God's people can easily become corrupt when they expose themselves purposely to corruption. The second theme is clearly the holiness and the grace of God. The holiness and the grace of God. These two qualities from the Lord are always in perfect tension. God's grace 
never negates his holiness, and his holiness never nullifies his grace. They are always survived together. God's holiness is seen when we see he strikes two of Judah's sons dead. Why? Because they were evil. And it, it, it doesn't say how they died, except that God was the cause of it. Specifically, God killed them. Um, but in God's grace, we see that, that the overcoming of these blatant sins in Judah and Tamar's life and how God is using them to fulfill his purposes. Because we see in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, there is this guy named what? Perez in the line of Jesus. Perez in the line of Jesus. Now, it would be great. Now, now think about this for a moment. All those who have, of us who have been born into godly families or have um, uh, been what we hope had created godly families and had children born into them, um, it would be great if there was a guarantee that simply being born into a godly family or being godly and having children guaranteed their holiness and guaranteed their pursuit of the things of Christ their entire lives. But that is not always a guarantee. I mean, we see the Lord working in Judah's life even in the midst of his blatant sin. The Lord is working out his sovereign plan even though the people over here are doing terrible things. And we scratch our heads and go, ah, sometimes, how is this possible? But that's the way the Lord works. That is the way that he works. Now, God's providence really is the emphasis of the story. It is God's providence. As I said, the Lord has a plan. He is working it out. Even in the midst of sinful actions of his own people, he is working it out. And, and Joseph will admit, admit that. He gets to chapter 50. And he says what? What man meant for evil, God meant for good. So God providentially overrules all things to fulfill his purposes and to fill his promises to his people. Now, when we read this story, we might think this is totally unrelated to Joseph, okay, in whom God's grace is clearly seen again and again because it, we see and we understand in Joseph is a type of Christ. He's sold into slavery by his brothers. You know, he comes back in the end and he saves his brothers. So he's a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, but this is, uh, you know, more than anything else, this chapter reminds us of God's utter realism about sin. He doesn't whitewash sin. He doesn't go and say, you know, he, he could have said what? Um, and Judah involved himself in sin and out came an heir. He doesn't say that. He gives us the details, all the details, probably more than we want to read, but he gives them to us there. So it's very important, the passage is very important in telling us the, the succession of the line of Judah. Remember, and I won't go through all the lines, but Judah is the fourth son. Typically the first son is through the line and the promise goes. But Judah is the fourth son and the covenant is going through him. And, and whether he grasped this or not at this time, but... Uh, as far as you know, he, he's just trying to live out his life and, and he's become kind of self-absorbed and he doesn't want a good Jewish girl. He wants this, this woman from over here and he pursues sin, yet the Lord is going to work it out through his grace. So this passage also teaches us, it's got a couple other purposes. One is a literary purpose. 
Okay? So if you go before this, Joseph has been taken off into captivity. So it's almost a, a, a subplot. Almost, if we called it a meanwhile back at the ranch, this is what's going on in, in the family. While Joseph is over there trying to work out things, being in slavery, etc., Judah's over here living the high life and doing what he wants. Okay, so that's one, one break or one explanation why we have this chapter right here. The second is it gives us a story of a backdrop to Joseph and something to compare and contrast. You have Judah's sin. He's got everything going for him, but yet he pursues sin with all that he is. And then the next chapter you have Joseph, who has everything against him. And what is he pursuing? Godliness. The things of God. He's remaining faithful even though these terrible things come upon him. And then third, it gives us insight into the character of Judah. The one through whom the promises, the covenant line is going to come. And, and you know, when we read this, that's why we're reading this. Why is this here? Well, I want you to understand the Bible never includes salacious material gratuitously. It is never just thrown in there, you know, like, like a movie. Well, the movie would be good as a PG movie, but we had to throw some other things in so it's R. Okay? The Bible never throws it in just to make the story R. The, the author of Scripture, the, this book, is throwing in, Moses is throwing it in because there's always a wholesome purpose in its conclusion. Always a wholesome purpose in its conclusion. And, and Moses relates the details probably as delicately as possible. Okay, how about that? So, the daughter of Shua bears Judah's three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And then in verse 6, Judah arranges a marriage for his oldest son, Ur. Now, and, and as I said before, we immediately see that Ur is evil and the Lord takes his life. And there's no male child born out of this marriage. No male child, so no heir, because Ur is the firstborn. So the heir of Judah's line is going to come through Ur, the firstborn son. And so there is no firstborn son here. So Onan, the secondborn son, is called to go in and, and perform what is called a Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage is seen in three places in Scripture. This is one place. Um, it's also in uh, Ruth. Uh, it's talked about there, and it is also talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 25, where it's defined. And a Leverite marriage, let's give you a, a quick review of it. It's, uh, lever comes from, the Latin, it comes from the Latin word lever, which means husband's brother. Okay. So, in this culture and in the surrounding cultures as well, if um, um, uh, the, the brother dies and there are no male heirs, then the next brother in line is to go in and produce a male heir, which will not be his own, but will be counted as his brother's, okay? Because the brother's line needs to continue. There's a problem here, okay? Because Onan is the second son, and he knows if his brother's wife produces a son, he'll be cut out of the will. You get that? Because all the promises and all the inheritance goes to the heir of the first child. He's the second child. So he's going to get none of it. So he has no real motivation to carry out his obligation in a Leverite marriage. And he doesn't. And what does the Lord do? Kills him. Now, 
Judah doesn't understand these dynamics. He doesn't understand what's going on. All he knows is that my first son is dead. My second son is dead. No way she's getting my third son. Okay? No way in the world because there must be something wrong with Tamar that my boys are dying. He did not see that the problem was the evilness of his own sons and the evil in their hearts. So in, this is the backdrop of this tale. And, and, and as I said, don't think the, the Lord is, is leaving this family. He is in the midst of working in this family and working things out even in the midst of their sinfulness. Okay? Even in the midst of their sinfulness. Now, let's continue with the story. We jump into verse 12 and and see the rest of it here. Now, after considerable time, after considerable time, Judah's wife dies. So he goes in this time of mourning, and then he goes off to the sheep shearer's place. And the sheep shearer's uh, convention is pretty much like Mardi Gras. Okay? Uh, It's a big time and a big party. And everything seems to, what, you know, what happens in Mardi Gras kind of stays there, or that's Vegas. I, I've not been to either place. So, um, so this is what happens. And, and in this, we, we see Moses clearly teaching us what happens at the intermingling of cultures. You have the people of God who are told to be separate from the pagan cultures around them, but Judah goes and pursues this and pursues it again and again. And Moses is especially hard on this, as is other passages in Scripture and even into the New Testament, about intermarriage between believers and non-believers. In the Old Testament, it's the covenant people and the pagans around them. We get to the New Testament, Paul is very clear about believers marrying non-believers and being unequally yoked. And that is a terrible, terrible thing. Because it corrupts what is good. It corrupts what is good and takes away. uh, We can see, you know, who taught Judah's three sons what was right and what was wrong? A pagan woman. He did not involve himself in this. She taught him, she taught her boys her morality and her right and her wrong, not the right and wrong from God's word. And not in right and wrong, the right and wrong from God's people. So the whole point of Tamar's actions revolves around her rights to be the mother of Judah's heir. Okay? As the wife of the oldest son, she has certain rights. And the most important right is that her son will be the heir. That's what she is attempting to achieve here. So Tamar, so what Tamar does is wholly concerned with her right to be the matriarch of the family. And it's interesting, Moses makes no comment about morality in this passage, does he? He, he, he doesn't say, and what she did was evil, or what he did was, I mean, Judah admits that what? Tamar is, uh, verse 26, she is more righteous than I. That, that's the only moral comment that we have. But it's held in contrast against the next chapter where Moses makes a clear moral, con, uh, moral um, says it's bad, okay? Uh, sorry, I just blanked there. Where it's good that Joseph runs away from sin. So we see what sin is bad there. So he makes the comment there in chapter 39. He doesn't make any comment here. So Jude is on his way up to the sheep shearers convention there and... and um, 
Tamar says, you know, I'm going to get this guy and I'm going to achieve my rights. So she dresses up like a prostitute and hangs out by the gate. And Judah encounters his own daughter-in-law, doesn't know who she is, and they work out the price. Now, this tells me that this was not the first time that Judah had been to the sheep shearers convention. Okay? This wasn't his first rodeo here. Um, and, and he says, I'll give you a, a goat, but he doesn't have it in his hand. Tamar wants the collateral. That's what she is after. Because she wants to use something that is personally Judah's as evidence of who is the father of this child. Okay, that's what she wants. So her point is, I want the collateral to prove who the father of this child is. She takes the seal and the cord, which is be like today's visa card. I mean, would you leave your visa card with somebody as collateral? Mm. So this seal is what he would do when you would sign an important document. You didn't sign it. You put your seal in in wax, and, and that was it. Okay, so it has a lot of power and a lot of authority. It was very important. That's why he sends the, his buddy, the Adulamite, back with the goat to try to find this prostitute in which he has been with so that he can get that back. But when he can't find him, oh, uh, what are you to do? And he says, well, if, if we go and ask around too much, we'll be the laughingstock. Now, why would Judah say that? He knew he was wrong in what he did, and he didn't really want to be found out too much about the things that he had done. So Tamar is involved with Judah, goes home, takes and, and, and spends three months at home. And then word comes that she's with child. Well, you know, Judah, in his mind, is a righteous guy. And he's not going to have any of this. Okay, because basically she has committed adultery because she is betrothed to his youngest son, Sheila, whom, whom Judah's never going to give to her. That, that, that's inconsequential. But she is, you know, has played the harlot, and she's going to burn for this. And, but she's ready for him because she's got the seal and the cord and the stick. And on the way to the embers, she says, oh, pass this on to Judah and ask him, you know, say, hey, the father of this child belongs to this. And that's where he says, she is more righteous than me, more righteous than me than me the thing about this is Judah had become so thoroughly conformed to the corrupt culture of the Canaanites that he would pursue these things without a second thought that he would pursue such sinful behavior and not really think much about it except that well this was life his readiness to do this, his readiness and willingness to pursue sin openly tells us that he has become so, he's moved so far away from the teachings of the covenant family and the covenant people into the corrupt paganism of the Canaanites. Okay? Now, even at the end, he doesn't admit he did anything wrong. He just says, she's more righteous than me. But this Chapter 38 really is the backdrop that we measure the graciousness of God and the purity that is lived out in Joseph's life in chapter 39. Because we know the story of Joseph. We know how he, he resists sin and, and how he flees from it. And, and we see that God's sovereign hand is, 
in Judah's life, even in the midst of these sins, but it is seen in purity and holiness in Joseph's life as he pursues the things of God, even though he's in the midst of corruption. Now, where is the hand of God in Judah's life? Go to verse 27 of chapter 38. This is where we see God's providence being worked out all the way back in Genesis. It comes to fulfillment, as I said, in Matthew chapter 1, as it's laid out in the genealogy of Jesus. There is this battle going on in the womb uh, between the twins that were conceived. And we know the story. One puts his hand out. They tie, the midwife ties the cord around it. Hands drawn back. The other one is born. Now they put their hand out. They tied the cord around it to declare who was the first one to come out. But that is not how they are listed. God lists them, Perez, as the first one to come out. So he's listed both in Matthew and in Luke. And Tamar becomes one of the five women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, there's so many men listed in the genealogy, we can't go through all of their sins and all of their weaknesses. It's kind of easy in the five ladies because there's only five of them. But who, who is listed there in the, in the genealogy? You've got Tamar, and this is obviously what she done, what she has done. You have Rahab, who was the Gentile harlot at Jericho. You have Ruth, who was a Moabite, not of the covenant people, but a, from Moab. From Moab. Um, then you have Bathsheba, and she had her problems there. And then you 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 got a good one in there, don't you? You get Mary in the end. Now, why would you include? these people in the genealogy of Jesus. Well, there are, there are reasons to do this, and one of them in particular would be to, to say to the Jewish critics who are going, no, no, the Messiah can't be born this way. When you include all the dirty laundry from the people's lives, you see that there are people in Jesus' genealogy and people that God used that look a lot like me and you that have these failings in their lives. And our failings may not be listed for uh, everybody to read for thousands of years, but we have failings in our lives. That does not mean the Lord is not working in the midst of us to achieve his ends, to achieve his ends. We can look back and say, gee, you know, this is what happened to Judah when he pursued sin, when he went and sought out a wife from another faith. It is a if you're thinking about marriage, don't pursue marriage for someone who, with someone who does not believe like you. Okay, Someone whose heart does not burn with the desire of the things of Christ like yours does. It's not enough to marry somebody who will just tolerate your faith. You must marry somebody who loves Christ in the same way that you do. Because if you don't, their involvement will decrease and your involvement will decrease as well and your heart will be taken away from the things of the Lord so Jews would never include stories such as these in the genealogy of the Messiah but God has done this to show us he is in the midst and working in the lives of people just like us just like us Perez is in the line of Christ the Messiah the savior of the world because God loves to turn what men think is evil and use it for his good purposes. So what 
has been evil in your life? What have you pursued as an individual? And, and maybe you just, you really didn't see it all and this was just what you wanted at the time, but God, you didn't see it until later, but God was using it for his purposes in your life. Maybe he used it to get your attention. Maybe you, were, you, you didn't even know who the Lord was, but you pursued sins at such a degree that you bottomed out, and it was there that the Lord took out this godly two-by-four and bonked you on the head and got your attention. What man meant for evil, God will mean for good. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you from this passage, and it is, uh, it's an interesting passage, Lord. But we see your hand of providence at work. We see you in the midst of lives of people who are pursuing sin, but yet you're using their actions to achieve your ends. And Heavenly Father, we can look at our own lives and see where we pursued what we wanted. But as time has gone by, we see see how you have worked it out. We see how you have used those actions to get our attention, to drive us to our knees possibly, to drive us to the things of Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray today that that if we're involved in, in sin in some fashion like Judah was, if we're pursuing it, that we would turn and flee from it. That it would not take us reaching the bottom or, or destroying our lives that for, for you to get our attention but that we would turn and pursue now the things of holiness and the things of Christ. That we might see you at work, that we might know your hand, that we might rejoice in the grace that you bestow upon us. That we might not have to have a bunch of dirty laundry, but that our clothing would be washed white in the blood of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.